lately I've come to sense how trapped people are in our world, just at this moment. Maybe you've sensed it too as you've been involved in evangelistic conversations. There's such deception going on. And it goes so deep and goes back so far that people can't see through it. They flatly deny the reality in front of them. They pursue ideas that are quite frankly ridiculous. I often wonder what historians will make of this period of human history. Perhaps they'll just wonder what we all were smoking. <laughs> but, but it is serious, isn't it? It can't be explained by just the persuasiveness of ideas, unrelenting logic and undeniable fact. There's a kind of blindness that is so unself-aware and almost impervious to challenge. Have you come across it? It is at its most ludicrous, I think, when a politician is asked, what is a woman? And they cannot answer or refuse to answer. But I have friends, members of my family, who simply seem unable to think through what is involved at moments like that and think it's perfectly reasonable. This worldview, this perspective on life must not be challenged. It cannot be challenged. And they cannot escape it. And it's not just that one issue. It's a whole worldview, a whole way of thinking about everything. We don't normally have the vocabulary to effectively describe this, do we? Sure, we can use Paul's language of being handed over to futile thinking in Romans 1, but that doesn't quite get there. Something deeper is going on, something malevolent. My friends and my family members are trapped and they need to be set free. Three weeks ago, we arrived at the crucifixion in Matthew's Gospel and we saw God's magnificent fulfilment of his ancient promise. What looked to all who watched that day as defeat and weakness and death was anything but. And the centurion standing at the foot of the cross, aware perhaps of only a very little of what was going on, knew enough to know that it was out of the ordinary. Surely this was the Son of God. And we lingered at the cross last time, two weeks ago, to think about the significance of what was happening there. You might remember we turned to Romans 3 and we were reminded that something of monumental significance was happening. There on the cross, as Jesus died, the decisive dealing with God's wrath was taking place. The wrath of God was satisfied by God. God himself, not dismissing or sidestepping or minimising the condemnation we deserve, but exhausting it, draining the cup of his own wrath to the very last drop so that there is nothing left to drink for those who are his. The centurion didn't see any of that. None of them did that day. But God himself has explained that here was the propitiation in his blood that God put forward through faith. But there was even more going on at the cross, so I want us to linger for a little while longer. And so would you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2? Colossians chapter 2, and let me read to you from verse 6.
As therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Don't let anyone become your captor through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Because in him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision not made by hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up through faith by the work of God who raised him from the dead. You were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive with him when he forgave all our trespasses, having cancelled the charge against us with its demands. He took it from our midst, having nailed it to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities, openly disgracing them, having triumphed over them in it. You might uh, remember that the pivot on which the entire letter of the Colossians turns is verses 6 and 7. Paul has described what God has done in Christ and who it is who did this in chapter 1. God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 13 and 14. This was done by the one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one for whom all things were created, who holds all things together, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and who has made peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 15 and onwards. And then after briefly telling us about his ministry, suffering as he proclaims this Christ and all he's done, Paul turns from that to how we ought to respond. As therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's what Jesus did. That's what he did for you. So live in him. Let your trust in him anchor you and fill you with joy. This next brief paragraph talks about living out the victory that's been won for us and not allowing ourselves to be captured by, see it there in verse 8, philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. But I want to begin with the last sentence in that paragraph this morning. He made you alive with him when he forgave all our trespasses, having cancelled the charge against us with its demands. He took it from our midst, having nailed it to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities, openly disgracing them, having triumphed over them in it. It is, I hope you see, a powerful statement of victory And it's a powerful statement of victory over rulers and authorities, the real rulers and authorities, those who laid claim to us. It's a victory tied to, not opposed to, the forgiveness of sins. Since around the middle of the 20th century, there have been those who've said that we need to stop talking about the cross 
as the ground and means of our forgiveness and instead speak of this extraordinary victory over the spiritual powers. They say something like, we've all been caught up in legal thinking because of our heritage in the Latin West. And so guilt and forgiveness, condemnation and justification have been a distorting glass through which we viewed the cross. Dispense with that glass and you'll see that much more important is the victory that Jesus achieved on the cross, the victory spoken about at the beginning, back in the garden, he will crush your head and you will crush his heel. But here in Colossians, Paul will not allow us to pit one of these things against another. It's not a matter of propitiation or victory, forgiveness or freedom. The two go together. The devil and all the authorities and powers are defeated precisely by the same means as forgiveness comes to us. But it's more than that, isn't it? The charge against us, the demand of the law which condemns us, is set aside. It is nailed to the cross. That's how the rulers and authorities are disarmed. That's how they're utterly disgraced. That's how he triumphs over them. As our sin is dealt with, as it's forgiven, the devil's hold over us is broken. After all, the claim over us was never his, but the law's. He has no natural right to assert against us. The charge against us is the charge that we have not lived according to the way God has ordered the universe, according to God's law. And by that charge, the devil has sought to hold us in bondage. In uh, the book of Revelation, you might remember, in chapter 12, the devil is described as the Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of our brothers, the one who accuses them before God day and night. But once the charge against us has been cancelled, once it's been taken from us and nailed to the cross, as Paul says here in Colossians, there's no accusation that can be made. Everything he might want to say is inadmissible. And so the Satan has been stripped of his power. The accuser has no accusation to make and his power's gone. He's been unmasked, he's exposed, the emperor has no clothes, the roaring lion has no fangs. He had told lies in the garden. He had told lies in the heavenly council against Job. He continues to tell lies, even today. And the biggest lie is that you're not good enough to be forgiven. Of course, the real lie is not quite what it might appear at first. None of us are good enough to be forgiven. But it is not and never has been about being good enough. The picture in this last verse is not just of the devil being defeated by what Jesus has done on the cross, but of him being totally and utterly humiliated. When uh, in the Roman world a general secured a spectacular victory, it was in the power of the Roman Senate to grant him a triumph. Triumphs were like ticker tape parades on steroids. They were a means to wealth and power crowds lining the streets, people cheering. It was so ego-inflating that a little man was placed in the general's chariot to whisper, remember you are mortal. 
memento mori. But one of the reasons why that parade could swell the head of any man was that before the conquering general, usually walking in chains or locked in cages, were those he had defeated. They were stripped and they were humiliated. They dared to defy Rome, look where that gets you. They might have once been mighty kings, leaders of powerful armies, glorious heads of state, but now they're only trophies of war. That image of a triumph is meant to underline the completeness of Jesus' victory. It is all undone. The rulers and authorities, the Satan and those who execute his purposes, totally and utterly defeated. No chance of one last shot like Napoleon. It is done. Jesus' words from the cross, recorded for us in John's Gospel, were final. It is finished. And it all happens as sin is dealt with and there is no chance of an accusation being heard. In the book of Job, the Satan was allowed to test Job. He was given an opportunity to prove his accusation that Job only attached himself to God for what he could get out of him. And his accusation was proven to be baseless. Job did keep trusting God. Even when everything was taken away, even when he himself was afflicted, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job was vindicated. But in our case, there is no need for further vindication. Jesus has done away with the charge at the cross. He himself is the vindication in his resurrection. So the leaders of the rulers and authorities, um, the leader is a humiliated tyrant with nothing left to say, utterly defeated, exposed to the universe in his utter helplessness. As uh, you might expect, those of you who studied church history too, um, this image of Christ's victory over everything that stands against us, especially the devil and his minions, was one of Martin Luther's favourites. Everything that once used to torment and oppress me, Christ has set aside, he said. He has disarmed it and made a public example of it, triumphing over it in himself so that it cannot dominate any longer, but is compelled to serve me. So understand this morning what the centurion at the foot of the cross never really understood. The cross was not a defeat, but a glorious victory. And understand this morning what so many 20th century theologians never really understood. This victory comes as forgiveness is given. The devil is not only defeated by the forgiveness of sins, he's openly humiliated by it, disgraced, and led in triumph by Christ the victor. And that truth is worth lingering at the cross to hear. We need a big, big picture of what Jesus has accomplished. The propitiation that God provides and the victory Christ has won over the principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities. You, you don't have to be afraid. We are no longer trapped by the biggest lie the evil one can tell. Jesus has won and he has freed us from the accusations of the devil and that's brilliant news, isn't it? 
Yet in this passage here in Colossians 2, the great truth is told not just as something in which we can rejoice, and I hope we can, but as something that makes a difference to the choices we make now. See that there in verse 8? Don't let anyone become your captor through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Because, and he goes on, the liar has been unmasked, the accuser has been cast down, but it's still possible to be deceived. It's still possible for us to recreate that bondage to lies through philosophy and empty deceit. Lies have not departed from this world forever, not yet. The chief liar has been defeated. His massive lie that we have to work our way to God and it's clear that none of us have made it, none of us have worked hard enough, none of us is good enough for heaven. That lie has been overturned by the cross and the resurrection but we're still liable to surround ourselves with lies and to lie to each other. We could create our own web of lies in which we can be trapped. And Paul's point is that that is really genuinely possible. You can allow yourself to be taken captive all over again by foolish human ideas. Just as the so-called God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, it is possible to pursue human traditions, knowledge on our terms, or perhaps even a deeper spiritual knowledge, and so to turn away from Christ the victor. And you need to watch out for that, Paul is saying. You need to be armed against that danger by understanding who Jesus is, the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, verse 9, and understanding what God has done, delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Let go of those things, lose sight of Jesus' victory, and it's all too easy to be ensnared by a web of lies. And that's why Paul takes the time to give this warning. Don't fall for that, he's saying. Watch out for that. And as Western culture turns its back ever so determinedly against Christ, away from the gospel, that is what we see happening. A web of lies so self-reinforcing that it seems invincible. A friend of mine watched his son get drawn into the philosophy, the empty deceit of our time, and he said it was almost as if you could see the chains. He was trapped. But, dear brothers and sisters, if Jesus could undo the one great lie of the Satan, he can undo all those other lies we manufacture as well. I'm praying that my dearly loved family member might be set free by the only one who can really do that. I remember the Gerasene demoniac and I know Jesus can do it. I remember the cross and know that the victory has already been won. You don't have to be trapped by a way of thinking that spirals downward into destructive absurdity and nonsense. 
don't seek wisdom or spiritual insight anywhere else apart from Christ. So friends, stand, uh, stand a little longer with the centurion in front of the cross this morning and see this dimension he could not see. Here is a victory so complete that so disarms the greatest of our enemies and removes all claims against us that we can trust him to overcome the other lies that seem so powerful in our time as well. And the one who did that is not only the son of God, as the centurion said, but the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and who is the head of all rule and authority. Will you pray with me? Father, as we live in our moment of time, the moment of time in which you placed us, we grieve at the lies that are being told and the way in which people are being trapped in a way of thinking and living that is contrary to Christ and which is so self-destructive. We pray that you might help us to speak clearly of his great victory into that world. And for ourselves, we pray, will you help us to heed the warning of the apostle and to guard ourselves against departing from Christ and pursuing knowledge and wisdom elsewhere. For this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.